Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. This might be one of my favorite episodes we've done in a very long time because we had the unbelievable pleasure of speaking with Uju Asika, who is a blogger, a beloved blogger, screenwriter, and creative consultant based in the UK. She has a blog called Babes About Town, which started about stories of life as a parent in London, looking at culture and family life. But it emerged into a blog about what it's like to look through the lens of race as a parent because Uju is Nigerian born and UK raised and she is raising two sons and living an experience as a parent of teenage black boys that she feels the world needs to know about. We spend a lot of time exploring the themes in her book bringing up race, how to raise a kind child in a prejudiced world. And it's a fantastic book. And one of the fascinating things for me was seeing how similar our approaches can be when talking about race as they are when talking about puberty and sex. So we have no doubt that you will enjoy and find some wonderful nuggets from Uju and our conversation with her. Hi, Uju. Hello. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, everyone. Uju, we are so thrilled to have you on the Puberty Podcast for a number of reasons. You represent International Voice, which is always exciting, especially because we seem to have grown quite a following in the UK. So that's nice. So you can say hi to all of your peeps over in the UK. Um, But also because you bring a perspective to a topic that we have not addressed nearly enough on the Puberty Podcast, and we're very excited to begin to address it with you today. And that is the intersection of parenting and race, which granted, we live in different countries, and the experience of parenting through race is different in the different countries, something that you write quite a bit about, actually. But There are some very common threads that parents and kids alike and all of the adults who touch the lives of kids who are growing up today, all of those adults need to think through and open their eyes to. And so that's where we'll begin this conversation. 
I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you have become a voice in this cross-section of parenting and race, because you come to it a little reluctantly as a parenting expert. There are always quotes around parenting experts. So go, tell us a little bit about yourself. (laughs) Yes, reluctance is the word. I'm still quite sort of shocked and surprised to find myself out here as touted as a parenting expert, which for me is slightly oxymoronic. (laughs) And uh, as a diversity expert, I do a lot of speaking ever since the book came out. And I like to introduce myself as a diversity enthusiast, which... That's a new one. (laughs) Because, you know, I'm really enthusiastic about it, but I don't know that I have expertise in that sense. You know, I write from lived experience and obviously from a lot of research. You know, my background is in journalism. And, you know, as a mother, I'm a mother of two boys who are teenagers now. Having raised them in Britain, they had a very different experience from me. I was born in Nigeria. I came to the UK as a young girl, attended an all-white school, had a lot of very positive experiences, but also a lot of very negative racialized experiences. So I brought a lot of that into the book, as well as sharing experiences of different parents that I interviewed, because I wanted to speak to diverse parents so that people who read the book could understand that race is something that affects all of us. It's not a Black thing or a Black versus white thing. It's a universal issue. It's funny, I've been struck in reading your book by how similar in some ways conversations about race are or can be to conversations about puberty and sex. Mm. And it was kind of like, duh, like how did I never realize this before? But I am not a diversity expert. And it took your perspective and your approach to addressing race within a family context that really helped me appreciate how that is the case. And we're going to explore that in a variety of ways throughout the conversation. But I want to start with the question that often we get asked about puberty and sex, but I want to talk about it in the context of race, which is, is it ever too early to talk to a child about race? Very simple and short answer, no. (laughs) It's never too soon. It's never too early. And it's funny, it's one of the questions parents ask me all the time. They're like, so when is the right time? You know, when is that ideal moment that I can begin this conversation? Like it's yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Right away. Like even if you don't have a child, even if you have not even thought about having children, that you're with a partner and you're sort of projecting into the future about possibly having children one day, start that conversation, have a conversation with yourself, have a conversation with your peers, your other half, start thinking about what race means to you. What are your values as a human being and what do you want to share with your with your child growing up but I say it's it's never too early because one of the things that shocked me when I was researching the book was finding out that babies as young as three months old can can see race can notice race so there's always this concept of race blindness or a lot of people in my generation who grew up thinking, oh, it's good to be colorblind or I don't see color or let's not talk about race because we're all equal. And actually that's a fallacy. If a baby as young as three months old can identify people of different races, then you need to be able to talk to your child as soon as they can speak, but even before then, if you can about race in a positive way. Right. I mean, you use the example, which probably everyone listening has experienced, is you're online at like the grocery store and your kid sees someone and notices something about another person. It might be their weight or their height or their race or their style of dress or their style of speaking. And they just like 
blurt it out full volume because children have no, you know, ability to modulate. And there you are trying to shush your kid and tell them like, no, 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 that's rude. Don't say that, you know, don't, don't notice this or that. And you talk about why we shouldn't shush them, why we shouldn't shut down those comments. Can you share? I just love the way you frame it. You use some really wonderful metaphors in the book. Why shouldn't we? Why is it okay to let them have those noticings out loud? Or how do we like revisit those comments in an appropriate way once they've they've noticed something and proclaimed it to the world. And in the context of answering that question, I'm going to read a little quote from the book. I was furiously flipping through the book (laughs) to look for this, um, which is exactly to your point. You talk about infants recognizing color, seeing color. and, And then you go on, you say, numerous studies show that by age two, children have started sorting themselves into groups, showing a preference for people who are more like them. By age three, they show signs of unconscious bias against other ethnicities. So in that context, we'd love for you to share your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, again, that little piece of research for me was quite shocking because you think children have to be older before they start to pick up these messages from society. And actually, children are little sponges and they're just absorbing these messages from, you know, from babyhood. And if a child says to you, oh, look, you know, look at that brown man, or why does that person have hair like that or something, you know, your instinct is to shush them. And one thing I will say to parents is that if you do shush them in the moment, don't start beating yourself up now thinking, oh, I made, you know, I made a huge mistake because actually we all do this. It's sort of a natural instinct. But what you want to do is affirm their curiosity because curiosity is something that you want to breed in your kids and it's a valuable thing. So you want to affirm and validate your child. Otherwise, they start to think that that brown man, there's something wrong with mentioning that that man is brown, or they start to think that there's something wrong with that brown man. You know, children pick up all sorts of little subverbal messages. So you want to just affirm their curiosity and respond in a really open, natural and direct way. Like, yes, that man is brown. You know, what color am I? What color are you? And turn it into a conversation and kind of open the door for their curiosity. I always say with, when you're talking to children about anything, you know, you mentioned puberty, you mentioned, you know, I talk about sex. You want to like open the door and leave the door open. Don't slam the door in their face. So that's kind of like my model going forward. Like keep that door open, even if, what they say is a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Makes me want to like slab the door shut and go, no, 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 never again. Like keep the door open. That's the most important thing. If you listen to enough of our episodes, you'll hear us preach the importance of air, particularly down there. Airing out body parts reduces sweatiness, stinkiness, and skin irritation. And it feels amazing to air it all out after a long day in tight, sweaty clothes. Which is why we created the Oom Short. Super soft, lightweight, with wide legs and a low crotch. All help air flow. Designed for all genders in all sizes, literally down to kids extra small and up to men's extra large. Everyone who wears them tells us they've never been so comfy. Get your shorts at myoomla.com. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested, I'm less cranky, and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. (laughs) And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. 
Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, magnesium breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. It's amazing how similar it is, right? Because you have a kid, you're in the store and your kid turns to you and says, you know, my penis is sore or, you know, a lot of kids, my vagina is itchy, right? (laughs) Like all of the statements that kids make and when you shush them about that stuff, just like with race, it makes them feel like that's a topic not to be discussed. Or when you never speak about it, right? When it's a topic that is completely, and I want to get to that, your comments about the colorblind, the, you know, our generation grew up that being colorblind was the ideal. But with never ever speaking about it, whether it's race or puberty, or sex or body parts, it confers shame on that topic. It communicates to kids it's a topic not to be touched. And all of us have a goal. And we we use that phrase all the time, would you to leave the door open, even if it's just open a crack and find ways to keep it open. Can I read another excerpt that is 
spot on. And then I promise yes. I'll stop reading excerpts. But this book is I, I was just going to read so your powerful book. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do the the audiobook version part 2. Um okay, ready? This is right exactly in the lane that you guys are speaking. You wrote anti-racism educators say it's important for children to learn to name and frame whiteness, blackness, and other ethnic identities without sugarcoating. It's kind of like teaching young kids to use the correct terms for their genitals. Cute pseudonyms like Miss Nunu and Mr. Pickle, which are two pseudonyms we have not, we cover them all on this podcast, but those two have not been covered, <laughs> um, are funny, but can put children at risk. It can dissociate them from their own bodies, making them feel that these areas are unmentionable. This can leave them more vulnerable to sexual predators. So, I mean, the the marriage of these two conversations, right? 100%. You know, Mr. Pickle, those are actual names that I've heard. And it's really funny when you sit with parents and you kind of hear some of the names that they've used with their kids or that their kids have come up with. And, you know, people say to me, oh, but my child, you know, they, they don't know black or white. You know, if I say to them, I'm black, they say, no, I'm brown. And I'm like, that's all perfectly fine because, you know, of course the child is going to look at you and think, well, you're not actually white. You know, I've learned my colors. You're more <laughs> like pinky creamy, but you can still give them the actual words that are used in society. You can still give them the context because it's important and it helps to frame the conversation so that you can talk about race on a sort of slightly bigger level than just the interpersonal, you know, I'm brown and you're peachy. <laughs> you know, there's a lot more to, to the conversation and that kind of opens opens the door to, to more. Uja, I'm curious because you were born in Nigeria, but raised in England. And I'm curious if having two cultural identities for you, if we flip the conversation, when I think about puberty and sex and how people from different cultures approach it when they're raising children in the culture that they were not born in. I'm wondering, like, what are the Nigerian words for genitalia? Or like, do people use the correct anatomical language or do they use other language? I'm sort of fascinated by how you navigate that. I see now I'm like, do I dare say these words? <laughs> we say these words in Very all languages. Rude, <laughs> rude terms. Like in Nigeria, you know, there's like pigeon, it's a pigeon English. And people yeah. say like, uh, so for vagina or for vulva, you would say toto, which is like, um, which is a common pigeon term. It's not a term I would use with my kids or that, I don't think the average Nigerian parent would use it with their child when talking about puberty or sex. But also, this is a conversation that most of us did not have with our parents. Mm -hmm. You know, I think in typical Nigerian culture, there's there was a little bit of a remove. And I think it's changing with this generation, with especially with those of us who've been educated abroad and you know, bringing a mix of cultural ideas into our parenting. So for me, I'm a lot more open with my boys. Um, I try to be, obviously, keeping that door open is not always the, the easiest thing. I've got teenagers now. So um, yeah, a whole different scenario. But yeah, it's interesting. You talk about your sons and your relationship with your sons and parenting through their tween and early teen years quite a bit. And one of the things that you bring up looking at the overlap between what we do and what you do is the concept of the talk. You do it in the context of the talk about race. We do it in the context of the talk about sex. But really, I feel like we should all just drop the what it's about and just keep the bigger, broader umbrella of it because isn't it so true that everything in touching the lives of kids who are coming of age, right? Um, so educating them, coaching them, supporting them, loving them, parenting them, grandparenting them, whatever. But everything is about having multiple talks about the same thing. Can you guide us a little bit here? Some pearls of wisdom about how to approach race through the lens of multiple conversations and maybe sort of 
looking at it from the perspective of different racial backgrounds. So one thing you do in the book quite beautifully is you talk about the experience as a black or brown person, and then you talk about the experience coming from a white parent or caretaker. And I was hoping you could articulate a little of that here because it's really an incredible moment. I'm sure. Well, like you said, you know, we talk about the talk and it is a series of conversations. And now I think of parenting itself as a conversation. It is an ongoing conversation that kind of, you know, never stops, especially not in my house. (laughs) Endless. Um, Endless. (laughs) But yeah, you know, beginning, you know, how do you even begin a conversation around a topic like race? You know, I like to use everyday prompts. That's one thing. So starting with books and picture books, a fantastic resource. And I always say, you know, if you pick up a picture book and you find a book or you choose a book specifically with diverse characters in the book, don't read the book in colorblind mode where you're just like, I now have a book with diverse characters. So therefore this is my race conversation with my child. No, like take the the time to actually notice the diversity and to point it out and to ask questions that invite your child's curiosity and that invites them to ask questions too, so that they feel like this is okay. You know, it's normal to mention that this person has different skin from me or that this person's hair, you know, falls or stands in a certain way. So just, you know, use resources like picture books, TV shows, movies, you know, walking around your neighborhood, just ask questions. People say, how do I begin conversations? You know, ask a simple question. What have you noticed? What have you noticed about the, the people in your class? Is there any diversity in the class? Obviously, you're not going to use the word diversity unless your child is you know, an adolescent, you're not going to say to your toddler, have you noticed diversity in your class? But it's just, you know, who's in your class? Let's find out more about them. What do they look like? You know, encourage your child to share in kind of an open way. And then you just build on the conversations as your children grow. So let's say, I mean, our listeners, I would say the bulk of them are raising kids between eight and 18 um, and probably, you know, predominantly in that adolescent So let's use Bridgerton as an example. (laughs) Vanessa's favorite example. I use Bridgerton as um, an awesome example. Yeah. yeah, Well, as it for me, it was about I used it for sex ed and basically to help my daughter manage her expectations about what losing your virginity actually looks like versus what it looked like in season one of Bridgerton. But I'm curious in terms of race, right? It's a it's a profoundly racially diverse show. And yet it's not really ever talked about. Occasionally they're occasionally oblique. So like what if we're sitting there with a you know 15 year old watching it? How would you approach that, Uju? Uh, I love this. I love Bridgerton. <laughs> um, I think this is a great example. So like if you're watching Bridgerton, which I would not watch it with my 15 year old because I wanted to enjoy it by myself, which is what I did. I'm with <laughs> you. Only Vanessa watched it with her teenager. I was not That's watching that. Clip. I didn't even watch it with my husband. Like that was my show for You're me. You're like, I'm not sharing this with any of you. I was not sharing that with my, any child, nobody. <laughs> That was me enjoying Bridgerton. Um, But if I'm sitting there watching Bridgerton with someone, it's a really interesting example because, you know, it brings, especially with a 15-year-old, you know, there's so many layers to it. So let's look at who created the show because ultimately it's really about the person behind the show who's telling the story. I always speak with my boys about, you know, I use stories as, a metaphor for pretty much everything. And I talk about, you know, stories like who is centered in a story, you know, who is telling the story, who is this story being told for. And with Bridgerton, you see very clearly the person who is telling the story is coming from 
background of diversity. You Mm -hmm. know, she is also a diversity enthusiast. (laughs) And so it's like the power of somebody who is a Black woman being able to tell a story that centers Black people without turning it into a thing is really, really incredible. So that's that's a conversation that you can start with like, okay, how does this compare to other shows that you've watched? How does it make you feel to see this amount of diversity in a show where the show is not specifically about race? How does that make you feel? Does it make you feel empowered? Do you feel in any way triggered? Why is that? You know, your feelings are okay. Let's talk about them and let's sort of unpack them. So there's so many different ways you could approach it with a show like Bridgerton. Uh, That's what I say to people. It's like, it doesn't even have to be a show about race. When you're watching shows, like I watch Friends with my boys. We watched Friends twice, (laughs) which because we love Friends, but you're watching Friends. And I'm like, I've lived, you know, I I worked in New York. I've lived in New York. I'm like, this is not what New York looks like. And I was able to have that conversation with my friends. I think the first, with my boys, the first time we watched Friends, they might have been around... I think my youngest was about nine, eight or nine. And I was able to have that conversation with him. Like, this is a really fun show and we love it. Notice, what do you notice? (laughs) Do you see who's missing from the story? You know, what is that about? So there's so many different ways you can just bring up the conversation. So can I ask though, on the Bridgerton example specifically, to me, one of the strengths of Bridgerton, I mean, there were so many strengths of Bridgerton, but one of the strengths of Bridgerton was that it didn't mention race, that race was just the baseline was that this world was essentially colorblind. And yet you do talk a lot about this tension between colorblindness being a good thing and colorblindness being almost an excuse to not have the conversation. I don't want to frame it incorrectly, but can you help help unpack that a little bit? Is it better to have a story that is told where race is such a nothing burger that everyone is looks like anything and it, that's the premise? Is that the win or is there a different win? I think that uh, we need to have space for multiple stories. So what was powerful about Bridgerton is that she created something that you don't often see. She created that period drama, which we, you know, we know what period dramas look like. (laughs) We've seen them all our lives. And then she subverted it, but in a way that was so fresh and so immediately engaging that you didn't need to sort of sit there, you know, worrying about, oh, is this, you know, does this character represent this race correctly? You know, and it is a feature in the storyline, even though it's not the main feature. And for me, that's powerful because, you know, I am a proud Black woman, but that's not the only thing thing about me. So for me, Bridgerton represents not having a single story about race as opposed to just being colorblind and erasing race altogether. And I think that's the difference. You know, when people talk about being colorblind, they usually mean I see society mainly through my eyes. So basically I see society as white And everyone else in the society around me who is not white, I've just decided that they're okay because I'm coming from a colorblind approach. And actually, that's not the right, (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. not the right way forward. Like true diversity means I affirm every single person in their unique, you know, beautiful, multi-layered, complex selves. And they can bring everything about themselves into a room and it doesn't Uh, make me feel uncomfortable and it doesn't make me feel like I want to quash them in some way. So I think that there's, it's complicated, but there's a real difference between having a colorblind approach and having a truly diverse Mm -hmm. approach. I really appreciate that distinction. I wish that we lived in Bridgerton world for many, many reasons. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
but sadly, (laughs) (laughs) yes, I will refrain from expressing exactly why I wish we lived in Bridgerton world, but we can have that sidebar privately. Uju, the three of us can have that conversation, but sadly we don't. And one thing that we actually talk a lot about on the podcast, um, particularly when we have folks who come on who talk about legal issues for teens, certain safety issues for teens, is the specific considerations that adults raising Black children, specifically Black boys, need to think about, communicate to their kids, address on an ongoing way because the world is so deeply unfair that it specifically targets Black boys more than anyone else and their safety is at risk more than anyone else. So can you talk about, I know this is like a, it's a hard topic for me to ask about. So I can only imagine how hard it is for you to talk about raising two Black sons in London. Can you talk about like, what are those conversations like? How do you try to keep your kids safe while also not making it feel like they should never leave the house again in order to stay safe? Yeah, I'm going to take a very deep breath (laughs) because this is, it's challenging, you know, and I can't pretend that it's not a challenge. And when I have these conversations, I take a very deep breath and I sit there with like my whole body on edge that we have these conversations and I tell them the truth. I have to, I always say, if you're talking about race, especially as a Black parent or a parent of color, but also as a white parent, it's imperative that we tell our children the truth about what's out there, what they might encounter, how they should handle themselves if they encounter it. You know, my kids are very, very aware. Obviously, I've written a whole book and, you know, we have conversations all the time. And raising my boys in London, it's it's slightly different from in the States. When I was interviewing for Bringing Up Race and speaking to different parents, we spoke about what it's called the talk, the talk that parents have to give their children about having an encounter with the police. Mm. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard. I spoke to one dad and he said that he had actually avoided the talk up to a point because he just couldn't cope with it himself. It wasn't even about his sons. It was about him not wanting to go there. And I fully understood it. But ultimately, we have to prepare them because we see children as young as 11. Mm -hmm. You know, the other day here in London, I saw a 14-year-old boy being sort of pinned to the ground by police and he was crying He didn't know what he'd done wrong, you know, and here in London, you don't have as much of a fear of the police gunning down your child in the street, Mm -hmm. but they're still at risk. Stop and search for Black youth, specifically Black men, continues to be (laughs) at a crazy rate. And, you know, I look at my sons and I think, well, Look at their sweet little faces. Who would harm them? They're actually already, like I wrote about in Bringing Up Race, even by the age of 13, you know, by the age of 12 already, when they're out and about, people look at them in a certain way because they make assumptions about who they are. So, yeah, we have to tell them the truth. But, you know, I always say to parents, you tell them the truth, but you also fill them with a sense of hope. And for me, hope comes from stories of resistance, stories of community, showing if there's yet another Black man killed in the street, you show them the people who go out and march, you take them out with you to march. And then just, you know, at home, we just have joy. (laughs) We have so much fun and laughter and goofiness when when my book came out originally in 2020 here in the UK and people would say, oh, you know, how, how do you cope with, you know, this heavy time and this heavy topic? 
And I say, well, if you come to my house, you would not know that we were living through heavy times. We are just fun and silliness and goofiness. And you know how goofy, you know, young boys can be. And that's something that I want more. I want the world to see, you know, just how goofy young boys, young black boys can be to sort of embrace that and celebrate that. So, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> that's kind of... I mean, it answers it beautifully in that it's such a multi-layered, complex, exhausting process in which we cannot forget to bring laughter and joy and silliness. I mean, people always say to us like, "Ugh, teenagers, Ugh, teenage boys. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're awesome. They're so much fun and funny. I mean, yes, they're like super annoying and they could be really smelly and gross and like fart all over your house and all of that. But they're also amazing. Like I feel like if people would just give them credit for the wide range of humanity that they represent and fulfill, it'd be such a refreshing way of of looking at the world. And yet you write, Udu, about how people fear them. I mean, that's just the incredible thing that this notion that they are just silly, funny, awkward, pubescent kids. They're babies who do fart all over the place. And and think it's hilarious. They, they just bathe in it. They're thrilled. And yet they walk out the front door and depending upon the color of their skin or the clothing they are wearing or some combination of that, they are feared. And it leaves one wondering whether that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy on a certain level that they have to build a thick skin to walk out into the world. They have to stand, you know, with their chests puffed out and their defenses up because that is the way the world sees them. And then the world sees them that way more. You know, it's this terrible. And so to that end, and I don't know that, I certainly don't have an answer. I don't know if you have an answer, but what can we as the adults in their lives, beyond having the conversation with them about how to keep themselves safe, and you go through that in beautiful detail, but what can we do as the adults in the world to rewrite the story? We've talked so much about stories because it's not on them to rewrite the story. It starts with us, right? How do we begin to do that? I think you've started doing that through your blogging, started 10 years ago doing that through your blogging. Can you can you give people some tips about that? Yeah, I mean, what you said is exactly right. This whole sense of your son or our children having to walk out of the house and put on some kind of invisible armor And I always think, you know, for me, I want to put an invisible shield around my children as they step out of the house because, you know, you just never know. You never know. You know, parenting, it's just that constant what if. And for these young boys having to sort of walk through as if they're in a war zone, really, you know, with this invisible armor, it's so unfair. We have to change that narrative. You know, I'm glad you brought it back to stories because, for me, stories are so powerful. In bringing up race, I wrote a chapter called Books Will Save the World because it's like one of my core beliefs that the more we read and learn and hear each other's stories, you know, we cultivate empathy and we start to feel a sense of community because we need to be in community with each other to really be able to see each other you know, to see each other's children as children, even if he's 19, you know, you know, as a parent, even if he's 19 and he thinks he's grown, he is a baby. (laughs) And that 19 year old in the hoodie, you know, with the sort of headphones and the big boots clumping around, he's still somebody's baby. And you need to be able to see that. We need to be in community to be able to see each other's children as children that we look after as well. So I think a lot of it really comes from the stories, the sharing of stories and the connections that we build with each other as as families and community members and, you know, mums at school and 
you know, I'm I'm writing about it now. I'm writing about this very topic because my next book that I'm writing about boys, talking about Black boys in particular, for me in our area, at least I know that I have all these mums that my children have gone to school with since they were two, three years old. And sometimes now that they're off in secondary school, you know, I'll go out and someone will come up and be like, oh, I saw your son here. I saw your son then. It's like this sort of informal neighborhood watch. And on some level you think, oh, those boys can never get away with it. They can't get away with anything. But on another level, it just makes me feel more secure. You can never feel fully secure. It makes me feel more secure. Like there are people out there who sort of watch and look after them. And I think we can do that for all our kids really there's a narrative around adultifying black children and we had an incident in the u.s last week where a nine-year-old black girl was collecting lantern flies as part of a science experiment and her neighbor who knew her called the police claiming that there was a black adult who was making this neighbor feel unsafe and meanwhile, it was just this little child doing her science experiment. And for Black kids also, the research on puberty shows us that they are entering puberty on average earlier than white children. And so this disconnect between how they sometimes appear to the world, although in this case, this child looked like a nine-year-old child, but the disconnect, Cara and I talk a lot about the disconnect between how a child appears to other people, right? Older, bigger, more mature, whatever, and who they are inside, which as you say, a 19-year-old boy is still a baby. I have a 19-year-old boy in my house and my baby. God, <laughs> he's a huge baby. <laughs> he's a huge man-child. And so the levels between race looking at race and looking at physical development and the expectations placed, it's layer upon layer. And one thing that we like to do with our work is just to remind people that a child is still a child, no matter what they look like. They are their chronological developmental age. Do you have guidance for people about how to help in their families and their communities pull back this adultifying of Black children? I mean, are there conversation starters or comments that you found to be successful to address that issue? I wish I had like a, an easy route out of this. What you've just mentioned, first of all, I, I, I watched that, you know, the clip of the little girl that you talk about when they were giving evidence and it was just so painful to watch. You know, this sweet little girl and it happens all the time. You think of Tamir Rice. Mm. He was, was he 12 years old when he was shot while he was holding a toy gun? Over here in the UK, uh, I went on a protest for a child. She was known as Child Q because the police were called into her school and they strip searched her. Mm. She was on her period. And people rightly said that if she had been a white girl, most likely that would not have happened on school property. So this sort of adultification bias, as it's called, there's so many layers to it. Because like you said, you know, not only Black children being seen as older than, than their years, but also a lot of them are entering puberty earlier. And I've also read some studies that show that trauma can actually lead to earlier puberty. So it's this like, there's so many different layers. It's so hard to sort of unpick all the different strands. And I think, like I said before, the only thing that can help is really, aside from education and awareness, constant education and constant awareness, which is really lacking. I know it's lacking in the States. It's certainly lacking here. You know, race education is not something that the government necessarily <laughs> seems to want to support, but we need more race education. We need more race literacy. We need more awareness, but we also need more relationship. Like I said, you know, when you have a relationship with someone, 
you can see, you can see that they're a child. Even if that person is 25, if you've known that person since they were five, you will always see that five-year-old. And it doesn't matter their ethnic background or whatever, if you have that relationship, you will always see that child inside the person. So I think that's really important. It's just, you know, cultivating more relationships outside your immediate circle, you know, meet more people who come from different neighborhoods or different backgrounds, you know, try, like reach out because we need, we need that. Uju, we could keep going for five more hours and not tire of you. Your words are incredible. Your writing is as beautiful as your spoken word and you're just cool. (laughs) You're just, (laughs) frankly... I just want to be with you. We are so thrilled that you were here with us, that you shared your voice and your experience. We hope you will come back. We can't wait until you have another book baby in the world, which we will definitely, definitely share with everyone. But um, please know how impactful this conversation is for everyone who is listening It is very much about race and it is not about race at all. It's one of those amazing, sometimes you have a conversation where it can be about anything and it feels like that's what this is. It is everything you have said speaks truth to all of the issues in our life. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved having this discussion. I love that we spoke about Bridgerton, which for me is just a reminder that I need to watch it again. (laughs) Season one, probably, I think. And I want to take this little clip in which you tell me how cool I am. So I'm going to play it for my boys. (laughs) Can you do one about me so I can play it to my children? If you want us to do like a little cameo of, for, you know, for your son, your mom is so cool. They don't really she, listen to it. So it's really yeah, just for yeah. me. It's like my sort of daily affirmation. Yeah. Just, They'll be like, yeah, mom, two old ladies just called you cool. That's I know. Really yeah. great. Awesome. <laughs> Whatever. Thank you. Thank you so much, Uju. We hope you'll come back. Oh, I definitely will. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.